Thank you, ladies. As always, we're blessed uh, to hear awesome worship for our offering before the girls retreat. It's a little cooler in here than it is outside. We thank God for that. Uh, Corky read a verse, in essence, that says nothing can stay the hand of God. You just think about that for a second. Nothing can stop God. How many things do you know in this world that there's nothing, no superhero, no closing your eyes, nothing that can stop something else? That's how powerful and sovereign God is. There are things that God sets into motion and not every human being in the world can bring a stop to it. Not any machinery, not any equipment, nothing can stay the hand of God. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning, close with that thought, but I want to open back up with this idea of the end times. There's a plan in motion that God has that we will find at the end of this message that simply cannot be stopped. In our passage in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples ask a question about the end times and the ladies sang about fear. Sometimes the unknown can cause us to fear. The disciples are going to ask a question in our text this morning. And when Jesus answers this question, it is known as the Olivet Discourse. Olivet? What the world is an Olivet? Well, it was given on the Mount of Olives. So, since he preached the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, we call it the Olivet Discourse. But when he answers this question, it's the longest answer that he gives to any question asked in the entire New Testament. And it regards the end times, primarily about the future. Of course, we can't help with our curious nature and our fearful nature. To be curious about the future. What will become of all these things? We want to know. It enters into our mind. We see things that are happening in us. We see things that are happening all around us. And we wonder what will become of all of this. It affects us all. We kind of keep an eye on it. And there are endless predictions about how the world will end. Perhaps, you know, a doomsday person that's prepared any second with shelters and firearms and food and so forth, because the end may come any time. But there's lots and lots of predictions. There were predictions in my day. There was a big fear uh, in when I was growing up that the world was going to come to an end because of a nuclear holocaust. We even had drills in our school. I don't know how many out, how many of you had drills, but we had drills in case there was a some kind of bombing or nuclear fallout. When I was growing up in school, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Uh, we didn't really know what we were doing back then, but we felt safe and that's all that mattered, I guess, when something like that happens. But there's all kinds of predictions. Today, people say, no, it's global warming. We're just going to melt. It's just going to get so hot, things just can't live anymore. And some say, <coughs> no, it's the pollution's going to kill us. Can't you tell? Can't get a breath of fresh air anymore. And others say, no, it's overpopulation. We have too many people. Just go to New York City. Too many people around here. 
We're going to use up, burn up all our resources and we'll be the end of ourselves. And others say, oh, it's war. We're just going to kill each other off till there's no one standing. So there's all kinds of theories. It's perfectly natural to think about these and theorize. There's always something going on in our lives, not just on a global uh, level, but on a personal level. You know, parents wonder, how will my kids turn out? We wonder, should I invest? Is this a time to invest in the stock market and finances? Or should I squirrel money away? You know, what's what's coming? How do I know how to act and think and use my time and my energy based on what's coming? How will the United States pan out with all these cultural changes that we're experiencing? I mean, things are happening faster. Something happens and you don't even get a chance to wrap your mind around that and something else happens. Something else is being challenged. What will the United States look like, just say in 20 years from now, as rapidly as technology and culture is changing, 20 years from now, what will we even look like? We don't know these things. We'd like to know. Some people extrapolate and they make predictions. What will Christianity look like? What will this church look like 20 years from now, 50 years from now? If the Lord tarries, what kind of songs will be sung? Some might be wondering, will I ever find love? That's all I want to know. Will I ever find love? And in this time of curiosity, in this time of wondering, people turn to different things to try to know. Some turn to horoscopes. Some turn to psychics and get their palms read. Any any edge we can get, anything we Think that would just give us a little bit of information so that we can prepare for the future. Some turn to science and say, no science. It's proven. It's verifiable. That's all I need to know in life and to know about the future. Science will tell us everything. And then there are those that actually turn to the Bible. For comfort, to know, to have an idea what is to come. So it's natural to... Wonder about these things. Well, it turns out that in this passage, we'll read shortly, this is exactly where the disciples are. They are wondering what is to become of them, what is to become the world that they know of. And the reason they're wondering about this is because Jesus has entered into their lives. And the things that he has said and the things that he has done has not just changed their lives, but it's changed the world that they know, the world that they grew up in. This is no ordinary man. I mean, the things he says just just permeates things that have never moved before. And then the things he does, he makes things happen that nobody else could. And they're thinking about how they were raised in their childhood. And they're thinking about the stories that their parents told them that were passed down. And some of those stories pertain to the things that would come. And one of the things that would come, they were told, is the Messiah. And God's going to send them and he's going to straighten everything out. And certain series of events will take place. And they're wondering about these things because they see in Jesus that God is on the move. Things are happening really fast. They've already asked him, who gets to reign with you at your right hand or your left hand. You know, when all when all, when the dust settles, who's going to be at the top? Which one of us? Because they know that the kingdom has come. They know that things are happening. And they want to understand it. They want to be prepared for it because it's happening so fast. What should I look for? 
As a result of Jesus' teaching that we will read, there are countless interpretations of what Jesus means when he describes the end times. Some of them are pretty solid. Some of them are ridiculous. All over the place. So I come to this passage. It's chapters 24 and 25. We'll take about um, three weeks to go through these, which is actually pretty fast for the material here. And I come to this and I think, okay, I have two choices We can take several weeks, maybe months, and dive into end times prophecy. We can look at Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation and try to and and try to draw a bead on exactly what every word meant in the metaphors that Jesus uses and try to kind of pinpoint exactly how things are going to go down. And really to study the end times and prophecy, that's the right way and that's the only way you can do it. You can't just take a few verses. You have to look at the whole thing or you're not doing it right. And it's hard work, and it's hard work, we know, because even within Christendom, even within evangelicalism, there's a lot of disagreement about what Jesus means regarding the end times. So I thought, I'm not going to take that route right now. We're towards the end of the book, maybe some other time in another book. The other choice is to just kind of take the, the, the main meat of what Jesus is talking about. It's a little easier. But I think that you will find when we look at this passage that Jesus isn't just talking about the end times, but what he is doing is he is is preparing and caring for his disciples in his answer. I would argue that the main thrust of the passage really is to care for his disciples. Is to not focus so much up on the when, but the who, not when is the kingdom, what day, but who gets to enter the kingdom under what conditions and what do you do? How does it what does it look like? How do you enter and how do you persevere when you're waiting for all these things to happen? That will be my approach this morning. Rather than diving into trying to figure out exactly what day Jesus will show up, you can get some really good deals on books that have predicted the exact month, year, and day when Jesus is going to return. And you can get a good deal on it because it didn't happen. So what do we do? Jesus is going to coach his disciples here. Let's read the first 22 verses of Matthew 24. You know, Jesus has been spending a lot of time in the temple and he will spend the remainder of his life in Jerusalem. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when all these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise, lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, No human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be short. So the first three verses give us kind of the setting of why did Jesus sail? As he really just unloaded with some things. They're leaving the temple and the disciples are just kind of taking the scenery in as they pass by the great structure there in Jerusalem. The temple, it's a huge, a massive place, of course, in their day was massive, very, very well built. Uh, the stones that that were used to build the walls and it's built on the top of a mountain and actually part of it is on the side of a mountain so it had to be built up. Some of the stones that are on the bottom of these walls are basically about as big as this side of the congregation, the seating here, about uh, 12 feet, 30 feet long, 12 feet wide and so forth. I mean... When we think of stones, we think of cinder blocks and retaining walls. These are stones. These are rocks. And you walk by them even today and you wonder how in the world did those ancient people put these things into place? I mean, even with modern day machinery, how? And I've, sent, I've been to the city and I've seen it. It's, it's a massive structure. And um, because of all the stone, you can't help but to think, feel safe in there. And I remember walking around one side and seeing where, uh, I think from the Six-Day War, the bullet holes had chipped away some of the rock in the upper part of the wall, thinking, wow, those are big bullets. But they just barely scratched the surface because behind the little scratch was just more massive rock. And I think the disciples are just marveling at the, the, the gold that shines forth that was used in the building of the temple. Herod built it. They're marveling at its its massive structure and and how permanent it looked. Commenting. And that's why Jesus answers the way he does, because he knows what they're thinking. They're just thinking they're feeling so safe and they're thinking, okay, that the temple had been destroyed in the past, but mm -mm, not this time. It's solid. And this time it is here to stay. You can't move these stones or these rocks. And Jesus begs to differ here. They will be knocked down. 
Jesus says, not a single one will be standing. It will basically be rubble. And this will happen in their lifetime. Now, this piqued their interest, of course. When you comment to Jesus how permanent something is, and then he contradicts you, it will pique your interest. What's behind this question? What are the disciples thinking about with Jesus' response? It'd be helpful to know we have an eschatology, you have an eschatology, you have an idea how you think the world's going to end. Pretty much everybody does. It might not be certain, might be a guess. Well, they had an eschatology. The Old Testament saints, and I want to just, it's worth knowing this so you know what's in their minds and how they think things will happen. And I'm just going to use John MacArthur's commentary and summarize what did the Old Testament saints or, or the saints in Jesus' day think about how things would happen based on what they read. This is based on uh, the Torah. It's based on historical writings. It's based on the apocryphal writings. Very, very brief scenario of what they believe. They believe there would be a time of great difficulty, trouble, and tribulation that would come. They believe that a herald would come and pronounce the arrival of the Messiah. They believe that then a Messiah would come to them. And when he comes, the nations of the earth will rise up against him in battle. They will try to do away with him, but they will fight against him try to destroy him, but he will in turn, the Messiah, destroy them. Then he will establish Jerusalem, the city, and he will purify it. And he will gather all the Jews from all over the earth and establish his eternal kingdom. So that is what is in their mind as they think about what Jesus has just said. And it gets a little tricky because in the Jewish mindset, all this pretty much happens at one time, like the first domino falls and hits the second one, and it's just, it's, it's immediate. But the Old Testament's not complete in its eschatology. We know that by reading the New Testament and even understanding these words. The, old, the end times don't happen quickly. We're still in the end times. And it's been over 2,000 years since these words have been spoken. And, and they thought it was going to happen quick, but Jesus is saying this is the beginning. These are just the beginning of pains. And it's interesting that he uses the word pains because you think about a woman in labor, you know, they didn't have epidurals back in that day. I don't know what they used, but bite on a bullet or something. Well, they didn't have bullets in those days. I don't know what they used. But anyway, it's the idea of pains and labor hurts and you just get this thing out of me, you know, God, hey, whatever, when that time comes. And, and he's describing the course of the world will have this edge to it there's just going to be up another peak and then maybe not so bad and then another contraction maybe not and so we're, we're looking at these signs and we're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together but the important thing to know is that they thought it was just going to all happen real quick and here's the messiah they already pronounced him as the messiah you're the christ the anointed one and i've seen what you can do and this world doesn't stand a chance against you and i just want to know when this is going to happen how can i what should i wear how can i be prepared for it and he is telling them, they don't realize it, but he's telling them that, well, there's some things that are going to happen in your lifetime. Very prominent signs. But then there are also things that are just going to happen throughout the ages. And this is all really just 
the beginning. So it's not quite time to throw the towel in yet. So they want to know, well, when's this going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? What's the, what's the sign? Well, Jesus answers the question. And his emphasis is, is definitely not on the day and the age and the when. He gives generic things, signs. We want to keep these things in a peripheral vision. But he focuses in on people's hearts. He focuses in on how, so that his, his disciples aren't caught off guard when something happens, if they get news of a, a war or an earthquake. So they're not led astray. How many times, we want to talk about prophecy and end times, but look how many times he just said, so that you are not led astray. I mean, what? how many times do we have to be warned? That as the labor pains, as things happen in this world and these signs that just seem so definite, there are going to be lots of opportunities to hear the wrong message and believe the wrong thing and therefore be led astray. So he doesn't want them to be caught off guard. What can they expect to hear? He wants them to know that it's not going to happen fast, but... They need to be prepared for the long haul. We'll see that in Matthew 25 when he tells the parable of the virgins that brought their oil for the wedding ceremony and some of them didn't bring enough. They ran out. The idea is, look, you got to prepare for a long time here, a long wait. You can't just come with a little bit. So his emphasis is on the preparedness. Well, what are some of the signs in their lifetime that they actually will see? He says in your generation, it's approximately... 40 years. Well, he talks about famines. He talks about earthquakes. He talks about persecution and wars and rumors of wars. And all these things occurred in their lifetime. If you read some of the historical writings, um, I know that a lot of these are generic and they happen in our lifetime as well. I mean, there's all when is there not a war going on somewhere in the world or a threat? I've never known it. So these things happened. Uh, one historian records about 20 major and minor earthquakes in Antioch, Phrygia, and Laodicea before AD, before 70 AD. There was also a, a famine that struck the empire around 50 AD. So these things are happening, just as Jesus said. Uh, there were always wars. I mean, Rome was always trying to guard its boundaries, and they were conquering more and more territory. There was always threats and uprisings. It's in fact... Israel was always threatening to rise up against the Roman Empire. So these things happened. And there was plenty of persecution, even among the church. We read about Stephen being martyred. We read about Paul who became or Saul who became Paul persecuting Christians. Nero blamed the fire on Rome on the Christians and he burned some of them at the stake. Uh, He fed some of them to wild animals and Colosseum. There was lots of persecution. All these things were taking place during their time. They would witness many of these things. And Jesus warns them about the tribulation and the persecution. In other words, he warns warns them that not everything is going to go smooth. And I know that we like things to go smooth. And I constantly hear the word smooth in prayers these days. Who wants tribulation? When I go from point A to point B, I want the travels to be smooth. I don't want hardship. But Jesus flat out says 
you're going to have it. Because the world is in pain. The world is in agony. And things are, meaningful deep things are happening. And they can't happen without pain. It can't happen without tribulation. So he warns them about this. I've seen people make professions of faith based on how good they think their lives will be now that God has come into them. And then at the first sign of tribulation, next thing you know, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know that this is what Christianity was about. And then you don't see him anymore. And sometimes Jesus is pitched as an additive to make your life even better in addition to all the nice material things that you have and the money that you have in your bank account and the nice car in the garage. Then you get Jesus. And then when tribulation comes, I don't know about this stuff. I didn't know. I thought smooth. I didn't know rough. Where'd the rough come in? I didn't sign up for this. Well, according to the Bible, you did sign up for this. And you signed up for temptations too. Because we will all be tempted. Josephus testified of terrible brutality that took place among the Jewish people before the fall of Jerusalem. Another sign is the fall of Jerusalem itself. Now, there's nothing generic about that. That's very, very specific. Jesus says this is going to happen. And it did in 70 A.D. And though the temple was built to last and you think this thing will be here forever, it wasn't. And what happened was the Jews, there were, there were constant uprisings, some bigger than others, but they were constantly threatening to rebel against the Roman Empire. And there were false prophets and false messiahs telling the Jewish people, follow me, I'm the leader, God sent me, follow me, and we're going to put those Romans in their place. So they're uprising. We're not paying our taxes and we're not doing what you tell us to do. Well, the Romans would come in there and they'd, they'd squash that skirmish and squash this one and Finally, they got tired of it. The revolts. And they went into Jerusalem and they destroyed it. And the army, the most powerful army in the world at that time, came and squashed and turned it into rubble. And Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation, abomination of terrible sin and desolation when you desecrate something holy. And this was done by one of Alexander the Great's uh, successors, one of the kings as the empire was divided into four different parts and he goes into the temple years ago during the worship of the priests in the holy temple changes it into a service to worship zeus and sacrifices a pig on the altar i mean everything you're not supposed to do in the holy place he did abomination of desolation jesus says another one is coming and it did through the romans as they march in and they go into a whole... First of all, they're an abomination because they march with idols and pictures of their emperor, their Caesar. And then they go right into the holy place and they destroy it and they have no business being in there. All of this happened just as Jesus said. Incidentally, one of the historians, do you think about, well, what about the church? Remember the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem was so active. What happened to them? I uh, don't know if this is true or not, but one historian said that they were supernaturally warned that the army was on the way and they escaped to another city and survived. So all of this took place. Luke chapter 21, 10 says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. That's the advice. And they did flee. Commentator Daniel 
Doriani says, Indeed, many self-appointed deliverers arose before the fall of Jerusalem. One preached to an armed multitude at Mount Gerizim. Simon Magus impressed many in Samaria. A certain Theodos, calling himself a prophet, promising to divide the Jordan, also attracted many followers until Phaddis, procurator of Judea, executed him. An Egyptian came with thousands of insurrectionists, promising the walls of Jerusalem would fall at his command so they could enter the city with force. And beyond these particular cases, Josephus reports that Claudius and Nero reigned, men such as uh, Felix and and um, Festus and so forth, emperors of Rome and procurators. Uh, Judea was filled with advocates of insurrectionists against Rome. So he's just talking about there's all the historical um, records of different messiahs and false prophets that arose and rallied the people to rebel against them. Practical. Why does Jesus give this information? I would venture to say it's not to satisfy so much our curiosity. It's not to pinpoint times, but it's to nurture and shepherd their souls. What has Jesus been doing this whole time during his ministry to his disciples? He's been taking them in. He's been speaking truth. He's been comforting. He's been sanctifying them with his word. And that's what he does. Even prophecy in end times sanctifies us. It comforts us. It helps us to be prepared for the terrible things and the alluring things and the temptations that will come our way. The temptations to believe false gospels. There are plenty of them out there even today. Be on your guard, he says. So let's make some observations as we think about what Jesus has said. And this is where I think Corky's verse was so appropriate when you talk about nothing can stay the hand of God. We need to understand as the people of God that there are things in motion that cannot be stopped. And it is the coming of the kingdom. And God can work in in material things, animate, inanimate. He can work in things in the spiritual realm and nothing can stop the hand of God and the kingdom of God is coming. And these pains will take place. And Jesus will come again. And so there's no need to pray that he will not come again or it won't happen as the way he says it will happen because it's already written in stone, so to speak. And so every supernatural gift or power that God has endowed with his people cannot stop this from coming. There will be a day of judgment. There will be sheeps, sheeps, goats, sheep and goats. It will be a day when we know proper English. God will redeem us from our ill-prepared ways. So the good thing about it is, since it's coming, God still gives us way to be, ways to be safe, ways to be prepared. It doesn't have to catch us off guard. It's a part of God's plan. The second thing we read in here is that not only are there physical dangers and yes, the persecution will continue. We read about it almost every day in the papers. Worldwide persecution of God's people being upended and losing their homes, being beheaded and so forth. He warns us that these will happen. But there's also great times of spiritual danger. 
And he warns us. There's going to be false messages and they're going to come at you in different angles. They're going to have different appeals based on perhaps your insecurities. What are you doing in light of Jesus's warnings to avoid these kind of temptations of false teaching? Lots of people, he says, are going to go astray. They're going to fall for it. What are we doing today to not fall for it? What kind of safeguards do we have? The, the, the false gospels and the messages and, and the false hope take every form of media available to man today. I mean, how do you choose what popular book you're going to read? The new wave that comes through the church. How do you know whether to read it? How do you know if that author is reliable or not? If the research is credible or not? How much background work do you do? Do you just take and read any book that somebody hands you or say this is the next Christian bestseller? Christian bestseller means nothing today. Christian bestseller could be the false teaching that Jesus is telling us to be careful. So I'm just saying, what kind of safeguards do you have? What do you listen to and how do you decide whether you should listen to this speaker or not? How do you gauge whether it's true or not? We need to be on our guard. In our lifetime, in the life of this church, we have seen people fall prey to false teaching. People that you would think that would never happen to. Somebody let their guard down. Believing little things. And then another sign is that Jesus says something interesting. It almost seems out of place. Okay, you got people falling for false teaching. You have physical things, wars, rumors of wars and persecution. And but then People's love will grow cold. As a sign of the end times, you mean, what does that look like? I mean, people will choose not to be kind. People will choose not to care. They will choose not to be compassionate. They will choose not to love God. I mean, how can people go from choosing to love and be warm to not? That's a good question. It's a question we need to wrestle with because in the end times it's happening and it happens. It's happening even now. Hearts growing cold. It's very possible. It's not only possible. It's real. And so in light of this, this text, what kind of condition is our heart in today? I mean, how icy is it? How many times we have to get hurt and that's our tendency well you hurt me and i'm just walling my heart off and nobody's getting in and that comes at a cost to self-protect comes at a cost of not being able to love or feel love and as the song and the offering said where do you go with all these fears love the love of christ so apathy not dealing with hurts properly just letting them fester Causes the heart to grow cold. Choosing not to forgive. Put another ice cube in the drink. Turn the, turn the temperature down. All of these everyday things, these choices that we have with our spouses, with our children, with our people that we work with, people that we worship with. We have to make choices to stay in love with God. We have to make choices to love one another. And that means sacrifice. And when we stop sacrificing and we stop considering others' interests as better than ourselves, as Philippians says in our adult Sunday school, 
then the heart begins to ice. A sign of the end times. If you see a cold heart, you see the sign of the end. So two things as we close. One is feel God's love and comfort as he warns us very specifically on what, how we can. We're not finished. We're just scratching the surface. There's two more sermons on this. He'll even get more specific, really about the heart, not about the end times. He is a great shepherd and he has just warned us this morning. What we can do to stay in love with him and what we need to watch out for and be comforted by that, but also be warned, put some safeguards up. Don't be the one on the wrong side when the sheep and the goats are divided in the end. Let us continue. If nobody else does, if no other church does. Can we, by the grace of God and the power of God, be the people that just won't Stop loving God. May God bless the preaching of his word.